All right, as most of you know, we, are, we have entered into the season of the year called Lent on the church calendar. Uh, Ash Wednesday begins that season that kind of models itself after the 40 days that Christ spent in the wilderness. Uh, it's the uh, time where we uh, kind of model that, kind of model the, uh, the time in the wilderness that um, the Israelites had as God was trying to remove them from slavery and remove uh, slavery from them, right, to form them into new people. And so it is during this time that we um, start off with Ash Wednesday, which is really starting off with a bang. We really talk about how, you know, time is fleeting, how the ashes we came, from ashes we came, and to ashes we will return, and our time is valuable, and it means something, the time we have here. And uh, this tends to be a time of the year where we are contemplative, where we think about our, our, ourselves, our own hearts, uh, our own some, sometimes sin and confession and all these kinds of things. And it's this time that moves itself towards Easter, towards the good news of the cross and resurrection. And so I uh, hope that you will take some time to be here each week as we go through this Lenten season. And we, we really know, we, we do Lent pretty good, but we know how to end Lent really well because we're going to have that Easter potluck where a lot of people will bring what they gave up for 40 days and it's just a lot of dessert and fried food and it's just uh, manna from heaven is what I'd like to call it. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good night and as, as down uh, kind of the topic feels a little bit downtrodden, I think, Lent, but honestly, this is just one of my favorite times of year. It's such a rich time uh, to consider uh, who we are and whose we are. And so um, typically this week uh, in, in the church calendar is going to one of the Gospels and talking about Jesus' time in the wilderness, and that's, that's partially true today, and we'll get to that in a minute. But we're in Mark, and, and Mark uh, just doesn't like to give much details and kind of likes to give a big overview of things, so it works a little differently in Mark. And as I was thinking about it this week, I thought about something that uh, some of you will remember and some of you may be too young to remember, and that is a thing called Cliff's Notes. I don't know if, if you were alive in the age of Cliff's Notes, and I know that right now in education, AI is a big conversation. It's a big worry for teachers, uh, the idea that students can just get online and have a robot write their papers for them and give all this information. But uh, in my day, AI was Cliff's Notes is what we had, and Cliff's Notes were these uh, books that you could buy in a legitimate bookstore, although it kind of felt like you should have to buy them in an alleyway from a guy in a trench coat. Um, you could just go to the bookstore, and they were just right there on the shelves. Now, they were yellow, and they had black stripes on them. They looked like caution tape because it just felt a little dangerous, and you certainly never wanted to get caught with one in school. But what a Cliff's Notes book did was it took a book you were supposed to be reading in school, and it gave it to you in just a few pages so you could get the basic ideas and maybe even pass a test on the book. Um, I'm not saying I ever would use that in school, um, but it happens sometimes, right? Uh, and, and it was one of those things, Cliff's was one of those things in my school that no one talked about uh, until you got caught with one, and then you found out everyone was using them all the time. And, um, and I, I, the first time was, for me was Withering Heights. Uh, Withering Heights is not something that ninth grade Mike was interested in at all. Uh, the, the only Heathcliff in any of my literature up to that point was the cat who liked lasagna. So um, that, was, that was the extent of it, right? And so I, I remember getting the Cliff's Notes and making sure no one knew about them. And uh, I mean, I literally bought it with my own money, I think, so my parents wouldn't know about it. And passed the test on Withering Heights, having never read the book. And so that was a bad precedent to set for Mike in ninth grade. So I, I utilized them, uh, you know, somewhat regularly. But I also, even if I read the book, um, they were great for studying because it was a good review of the whole thing. So even in the more legitimate uh, cases, I liked uh, the Cliff's Notes uh, a lot. But um, they were, the thing about them, what they did was they took a good 
10,000 foot view snapshot of something that was big in breadth that had a lot of details in it, but it kind of gave you this good overview. And, and the truth is, for me, even to this day, um, right now I'm trying to read something that's like 800 pages long. It's a, a, a fiction book that I've always said I was going to read one day, and I can only read like in 20-minute increments here and there just because of my life. And it's, I'm constantly having to go back, and I'll literally get on a web page and remind myself who the characters are, who's doing what, to try and catch myself back up. Right? And Cliff's Notes did a great job of kind of giving you that overview. And I, I look at the Gospel of Mark as the Bible's kind of gospel cliff notes, uh, kind of, because he just does not care much for details, right? Uh, Mark is kind of one of those maps, one of those things where you get to look at the whole landscape at once. It gives you a context for the other parts of the journey so they make a little more sense. Um, that's just largely how I think about him um, in, in, in this sense. It's a quality map, something that gives you that bigger picture and today is like a perfect example for that. So we're in Mark 1, verses 9 through 14. So uh, in these, uh, actually 9 through 16, I'm sorry, or 15, I'm sorry. So in these, in these very few verses, uh, Mark will cover Jesus' baptism, his 40 days in the wilderness, John's arrest, and uh, the announcement of pu Jesus' public ministry. All in these just few verses, right? What takes chapters and chapters for other gospels to get through uh, with details, Mark just plows right through it, just like just the facts kind of thing, right? And so uh, today we're going to be hovering at about 10,000 feet and looking at this whole thing. And I, I really was going to take just, just the two verses about the wilderness and only talk about those two verses. But then I thought, wait, but Mark, Mark is different, so let's just go ahead and, and, and use this snapshot. And so we're going to kind of look at the, the whole thing uh, that he talks about here. Uh, and maybe we will see uh, the forest that we might otherwise uh, miss if we examine the trees too closely, right? So, all right, Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 15 says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tested by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe in the good news. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. All right, so we have a lot of things happening in a short amount of time, right? First thing we see is Jesus baptized by John. And often when we talk about Jesus' baptism, the first question that comes along is why? Why does Jesus need to get baptized at all, right? Wasn't John's baptism a baptism of repentance? Isn't Jesus the one person who's never had anything to repent of, right? And of course, we know that Jesus will someday shoulder all of mankind's sin, but he personally did not sin. But we also know that the incarnate God doesn't ask people to do what God is not willing to do God's self, hence the incarnation. But I think here, the real key for what Mark is saying, based on the couple details he does give here, the real key for Mark is not the washing away of some kind of sins, but the words that Christ hears from God at his baptism. 
Those words are the key. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. I think we can assume that only Jesus heard those words, right? I mean, there's nothing to indicate that anyone else heard it, but Jesus heard those words. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And this is the first little landmark on our map that we'll look at today, right? Before Jesus can face the wilderness, temptation, loss, vocation, all those things that come in the next couple verses, you have this. Before Jesus can face any of this, before anything else happens, a full identity is established for Jesus. Jesus cements who he is by receiving from God whose he is. Identity, before anything else, Jesus knows who he is by receiving whose he is. And I would argue that if that's true of Jesus and important for Jesus in his journey, I think it's very important for us as well. Identity before everything. I'll be honest, I, I believe this maybe more strongly than I believe almost anything else that I talk about on Sunday nights from the pulpit. I know this from my own life. I believe this with all of who I am. I think this is such an important part that is often overlooked. I think everything good, holy, and sustaining flows from our fundamental identity as God's dearly beloved. As one that God both loves and likes. And that second one is not something anyone ever said to me about God growing up. Not just that you are my beloved, but with you I'm well pleased. I like you. Our identity is one that both God loves and likes. That one God literally delights within. This is a realization or confirmation that Christ needed and I think we need it as well. You are mine. You are beloved. I'm pleased with you. This will always be what I value most as a minister, as a friend, as a follower of Christ. I want everyone in this room, I want everyone listening, the, the thousands listening to this podcast, um, <laughs> I want everyone who listens to this today or one day or whenever it is to know, I mean to really know that you are deeply and fully loved by God. Right now, as you are, I think this is the first step, and I think it's a step I was taught to skip when I was a kid. I believe everything we need will rightfully flow from this acceptance of belovedness. We already intuitively know this. If you're a parent, you intuitively, I feel like, know this. That that's your one job above anything else. It's for that kid to walk through this world knowing that they, you are loved and you are liked by me if no one else, right? I think this is why the parental language for God works so well. I think this is the first step. I think if we lose this, we kind of lose it all. This is that first step off the path that leads us to very dangerous places. I personally don't know how to make sense of the Christian life without it. More, more specifically, I'm not sure how one could ever successfully navigate the wilderness without it. It sets the desert in context. It puts Lent in context. As we said Wednesday night, you can't spell Valentine's without the word Lent. That's the t-shirt I'm working on, by the way. Trademark. 
There's a reason why love and belovedness happens first for Jesus before anything else. But since that's this beautiful phrase that Jesus hears and we get to hear now, you're my beloved, I'm well pleased with you, you're my child, all these things. As we hear this beautiful phrase, it's what makes the next phrase so like jarring to me in Mark. Because we skip straight from that to driven out to the wilderness. After his identity is established, he knows how beloved he is, Jesus is, quote, driven out into the wilderness immediately, right? Other gospels say led. Mark says driven out. In fact, the Greek word here uh, for drove out is actually, it's, it's ek balo. And ek and balo are two different words combined together. You're going to recognize a couple of those. Ek, when we talk about ekklesia, means the called what? Called out ones, right? Ek means out. Balo is a verb. What it means is to throw. This is an easy one on your Greek test. You throw a balo, right? This one you can remember. You may have heard us talk about that verb before in regards to parables. Parabolos means stories that are thrown alongside. Parabolo, thrown, alongside our lives so we might understand ourselves and God a little better. So here is like exorcism language right after the baptism. Jesus is cast out. He is thrown out into the wilderness. As we read that, it can feel a bit, uh, feel like a bit of neck snapping that happens because of the gears switching so fast, right? What kind of change of tone is this? You are my son, you are my beloved, and you I am well pleased. Now I will cast you out into the desert. I love you so much. Now go to the woods by yourself. Doesn't seem very loving, does it? But I think Mark sets it up this way for at least a couple of reasons that I can suss out. First thing I would argue is that this drive towards the wilderness is very much a consequence of love. It seems to me, in fact, in keeping with the entire act of incarnation, that the God of love is always, always driven, always compelled, always drawn towards that which God has the right to avoid altogether. The places that God should get to skip out on. God is drawn to those places. That's what incarnation is. The God who should be above walking in this dust, crying our tears, bleeding as we bleed, dying as we die, should be above that, but love draws God near to it. In Hebrews 4, the, the verb that is used is we have a sympathetic high priest. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have a sympathetic high priest. We have a God who knows how we feel. Part of the confidence we have in God and in God's love is that we have a God who knows how we feel what it's like to be us, what it's like to struggle like us, to be tested and tempted by all we face. We have a God who loved us so much, it was not okay to just love us in a distance. God had to know how we felt. And that's, that's borderline insanity, right? I mean, you, you may have been like me. I, I've watched someone I love dearly uh, have a disease and go through the process of dying from it. If in some way I could have taken that from them completely, I would have done that but I wouldn't want to have their disease just so I know how they feel. 
that would be a little crazy, right? That functionally, we kind of talk about God having that kind of insane love for us, right? A God who knows how we feel, a God who shouldn't have to worry about those kind of things, choosing to know how we feel, to take upon himself all the pain and all the suffering of humanity, to walk through the wilderness that he created and shouldn't have to go through. We have a God who knows how we feel, struggles like us, was tempted and tested as we are. And you might say, yes, Christ really was tempted, but can Christ really sympathize? After all, he never actually sinned, right? And the best answer to that question I've heard is uh, by C.S. Lewis in a little book called Christian Behavior, where he talks about someone arguing that, and he says this. Who, I'm not, this is not a quote, this is a, a summation of it, but he says this, who knows better the full strength of the German army? The one who lays down and lets them march over him? Or the one who stands and fights them off to the very last one? Right? And Lewis's point there, that arguably Jesus knows sin and knows temptation better than any one of us ever has, because God stood through it all. All that to say that I think Christ's compulsion towards the desert is a byproduct of the love that's pronounced over him and of the incarnate love demonstrated by him. It comes from love. It's not some change of gears or some short exemption from it. I would also argue that this time in the desert follows nicely from his baptism and what was spoken over him at his baptism because belovedness is the means by which one can survive the desert. It is the means by which one can say no to the temptations of the wilderness we live in. In a sense here, Christ is showing us a path, how to go about doing it. And I know that Mark doesn't give any specific details about what happens in the desert. He's just tempted by Satan, and that's all he says. The other Gospels give us very specific, long-running commentary about what the devil is saying, what Jesus is saying, how they're responding back and forth. The other Gospels tell us how he was uh, tempted to define himself by uh, unloving and ungodly means. Right, he says tempted to define himself by self-sufficiently, by providing for himself through political party over the kingdoms of the world, through religious impressiveness and religious power over others. And he says no to each one of these things, things that we often say yes to. Uh, the church today at large, gleefully embracing most of these things, right? But I'd argue that all of these temptations are in fact cheap offers of cheap alternatives to the belovedness that Jesus already had. They're cheap alternatives to the belovedness that Jesus already had. I mean, if one believes, one truly and deeply knows that they are the beloved of God, the creator of all things, that the creator of the universe delights in them as they are, that God loves them without any condition, then why would those other things even be a temptation? You could argue, I think, that most sin, most temptation in our lives is an attempt to achieve what is already graciously given to us through our identity as God's beloved. It's to forget who we are and whose we are. If I'm rooted in the identity as God's beloved, then what do I have to gain from those other things? What does power over others actually achieve for me at that point? What identity am I finding in that? I already have my identity. What thrill am I getting from it? What does politics or religious respect or some false sense of self-sufficiency actually offer me when I know I'm God's beloved. They're just cheap alternatives to the real thing. 
It is the identity that we receive from God alone that renders these temptations impotent by comparison. I think that's why we have this order of things happening in this gospel. So at baptism, Christ is given his true identity, the roots by which everything else will grow and be fed in his ministry. And then, and only then, can he see the desert and his temptations for the satanic efforts that they are, right? He can hear what is being offered and see them for the false promises they are, to see them for the emptiness they are, He can sit among the wild beasts and be okay. He can receive the ministry, or the deaconing is actually the Greek word there. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He can receive the ministry from the angels that God sends to him to 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 uh, let him be humbly strengthened by it. Only after understanding his belovedness can Jesus walk into this messy, violent world with some actual good news, with an alternative vision of what things should be like. And that's what happens next, right? Jesus comes into his public ministry. He comes into it with something genuinely different and good and pure. John is arrested. The one who came before him is taken out of the picture, and yet Jesus is not turned aside. John is arrested in front of him, and he is not reconsidering the devil's offer of political power so he can make it right. John is arrested in front of him, And he is not trying to fix the world using the world's tools. He doesn't shy away from the explicit danger before him. He is God's beloved. Why would he? Jesus begins his ministry after John's arrest at basically the exact time and place it makes the least sense and is the least safe. This is when you go and hide for a while. But Jesus can honestly and authentically tell the world that something new has arrived. That now we can all choose something better and more beautiful. That we can repent, which is to turn from this broken world and believe in a better world to come. There's a new kingdom. There's a new king. There's a better way to live. All of this in a few short verses. The gospel according to Cliff. Lack of details aside, tonight may we open this map in front of us and let it show us the way forward. May we all begin by being rooted in the good news that you are, right now, as you are, the beloved child of God. That the creator of all things delights in you that you can already know who you are and whose you are before you walk out this door. And knowing that, knowing our identity, may we be so deeply rooted in that truth that all of this world's destructive temptations seem pointless in comparison. This is when we lean into the new kingdom. And then, maybe then, we too can embody some better news, some way to build a world that is better than the one we have now. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are thankful 
We are thankful that you are a sympathetic high priest, that you are a God who loves us so much that you died to know what it felt like to be us. That you are a God who has walked through every temptation, every desert, every bit of wilderness that we have walked through. And you came out the other side as love. That you even pushed through death itself so that we might know what eternity looks like. God, our prayer tonight is that every person in this room, every person uh, hearing my voice right now might come to know genuinely, deeply, and truly that whoever they are, whatever has gone on in their lives, whatever mistakes they have made, whatever ugliness no one else may know about, that you know them, and you love them, and you like them, and there's nothing they could do to make you love them any more or any less than you already do. God, may we root ourselves in that love. May all that we say yes, and sometimes more importantly, all that we say no to come from that place and that place alone. God, may we be able to face the wilderness, face our own brokenness, because we are your beloved. We do love you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're, we're going to do something a little different during the season of Lent. You can go ahead and stand with me now. Uh, communion, folks, you can come down in a couple minutes when we're done with this. Honestly, this is something I've kind of wanted to include in the services for a while. Um, but I feel like Lent is a good season for it. I think we'll know by the end of Lent if this is something we'd always want to do or not. One of my favorite parts of uh, kind of high church liturgy is when there's always a time each week for confession, a time where we kind of own who we are, how we may have fallen short, and lean into God's love and grace. So during the season of Lent, it seemed good to me before we do the communion each week to take some time uh, going through kind of a more of a confessional litany. It's going to have a little bit of silence in it. It's going to have some call and response. Uh, as you'll see on the screen where it says all, uh, that's for everyone. Where it says leader, it's me, I'm leading. So we're going to do this call and response, and I know it'll be the first time. It'll feel a little weird. And those of you who may come from a high church tradition, Catholic tradition, Episcopal tradition, something like that, you're going to recognize some of this language. You're going to wonder where the pad is for you to kneel on during this time. We don't have one of those. I apologize. But I hope this will be a meaningful time for you before we uh, approach the communion table together. So if you will join me uh, in the call and response. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon their ways. And the unrighteous their thoughts. Turn back to the Lord who will have mercy. To our God who will richly pardon. As far as the east is from the west. So far has he set our sins from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so is the Lord merciful toward those who fear him. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Let's now have a moment of silence for personal confession.
May we all read in one voice. Most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, in things done and things left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be, that we may do justly, love mercy, and one humbly with you, our God. Amen. May the Father of all mercies cleanse us from our sins and restore us in his image to the praise and glory of his name through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.